This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story. But that's why I'm here. To tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. Because I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, but your mind, and allow me to take you back on four feet time. Explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. My guest is Terry Patton. His new book is A New Republic of the Heart, An Ethos for Evolutionaries, a book essentially about spiritual activism or activist spirituality, translating our inner transformational work into the world in a responsible, loving, and caring way that serves the common good. Over the past 15 years, he has devoted his efforts to the integral project of evolving consciousness through practice and facing, examining, and healing our global crisis. Terry Patton speaks and consults internationally as a community organizer and teacher. Terry is also a social entrepreneur involved in supporting restorative redwood forestry, innovating new technological alternatives to fossil fuels, and creating new currencies for a sustainable economy. Terry Patton, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Well, thank you so much, Tonio. I'm happy to be here. Well, I really enjoyed the book very, very much. It's really a book after my own heart, and I love the way you articulated so much and, and really integrated so much into this one book. Many of what I consider to be the most important topics, particularly at this time in the world. Thank you. And your new book is titled A New Republic of the Heart, An Ethos for Evolutionaries. Now, here's an interesting thing. The hard copy of the book has ethos for revolutionaries, and the PDF that I was 
primarily reading from, had the title as R in parentheses, Evolutionaries. Oh, interesting. Well, I, the book's title is Revolutionaries. I, I Obviously, I think of myself as an evolutionary first, and the last thing I'm interested in is, you know, violent revolution. Second to last thing is opposition of any kind. Right. But I think that the kind of transition we're facing is truly revolutionary, and that's a a word that's understood more broadly, and I do want to speak to people with a social and political commitment. Mm-hmm. And here in Vermont, which is really a very much a hotbed of activism, and I really love the people here and how passionate they are and how much they really care and want to contribute and want to change the world. But at the same time, I can't help but feel that there's a critical element missing from their activism from their perspective. It's one of those things that's not easy to put into words very much as it's not easy to see the carbon dioxide in the air around us, as you point out in the book. Yeah. Well, there's a, a lot that's missing from the approaches that all of us have taken because, quite frankly, the human race is facing challenges that are unprecedented and that really exceed anybody's capacity to, uh, there's no modeling, there's no strategy, there's no analysis that is adequate to the hyper-complex and hyper-complexifying, accelerating nature of our current crisis. And it's hard for us to admit that. And because we can see so clearly the speck in the eye of the other, that we really have a tough time facing the frightening reality that we're facing a civilizational crisis, whether it's going to be upon us in a critical way in just a few years or a few decades, in terms of evolutionary time, we are there already. And so I think what we're dealing with is an emotional problem. The seriousness of climate change. There was an interesting article in the New Yorker just a few days ago by Bill McKibben in which he pointed out that every day the most important thing that's going on in the world is the enormous emissions of carbon of various kinds into the atmosphere. And yet on any given day, what seems most important might be terrorists driving vans into crowds of people or the abuse of women or criminal wrongdoing by office holders, or there's something that's attention-grabbing and immediate that seems like it needs to be acted on today. But our ecological predicament, particularly climate change, it is, it is urgent in a way that none of those other things actually is, and yet we seem to think we have time to deal with it. And that optical illusion, the fact that our nervous systems are so poorly equipped to address this larger civilizational predicament, because I don't think it's limited to climate change. I think it's perhaps the most fundamental levels of it are ecological, are butting up against the limits to growth of certain kinds in terms of the fundamentals of the planetary ecology. But really, we're reaching a moment in which culture is in crisis. I mean, every one of our systems our relationships between men and women, our relationships between people of different races, our tolerance for the kinds of unstated, 
oppression or unkindnesses and insensitivities and so forth that we used to tolerate as if they couldn't be helped. It's all coming to a head simultaneously. And oddly enough, at a time in which our capacities technologically are going through exponential growth, too, and wonders are beginning to appear and likely to intensify. All our wisdom traditions are in conversation with each other and our capacities to really be a full, integrated human being, our knowledge of our cognitive neuroscience, our capacity to reverse engineer our own neurology and and body minds and, and even our social structures are also threatening to create disruptive changes of a good kind. And all of that's happening simultaneously. So it's very hard for us to be with all of that simultaneously in an honest, authentic, meaningful, accurate way. It's emotionally and psychologically and spiritually, it demands a capacity to hold complexity and a capacity to be present in the midst of things that frighten us that are demanding profound growth of every one of us. And that seems to be, I'm relatively new to the term evolutionary, and that seems to be the definition of an evolutionary is someone who is capable of holding those different complex extremes within the container of their awareness of their consciousness, of their beingness in this world, and with the resilience and emotional capacity to stay present with it, at least for the most part. Yes. Well, on a good day. Right. uh, Right. We're all human. Right. We'll we'll get knocked off our feet. Yes. Periodically. Yes. But we... Yes. But at a certain point, we get to the point where that doesn't last long. Well, I think that that's yes and no, in a way. I mean, even the people who are our paragons of spiritual maturity and wisdom, those who are our elders, you know, the people with some real measure of awakening and enlightenment and maturity and stability, they're still a part of a larger human system that is itself in in a completely unsustainable relationship to its total life support systems. And we're all interlinked with that. And none of us has a clear means for bringing our total life into right relationship to its foundations. So it's very important, I think, for us to all be very humble. The Mm -hmm. wisest of us are often the humblest, you know. Mm -hmm. And... And to recognize that the human species is now facing existential challenges that nobody has adequate answers to. So the idea that we can find a way of orienting to all of this that is sufficient to the totality of it is kind of a naive idealism. Right. It'll never be sufficient to deal with, with the enormity. However, we have the capacity, for the most part, to stay present with within that state of unknowingness and humility of the recognition of not knowing and not being ever able to know. 
Right. And we can be courageous and we can be generous and we can be quite resourceful and very much compassionate. In the face of it all. That's right. Yeah. And that gets back to what I observe in this activist community that's so prevalent around here is they are very generous and big-hearted for the most part, but I see them primarily engaged in an adversarial perceptual relationship with our current administration, with big corporations that are engaged in the destruction of the environment. And it's such a difficult conversation to have with people. I was brought up aware of these things from a very early age so that I'm no longer surprised by any of this. And as I've gotten older, I think I've very naturally, perhaps I've naturally turned into an evolutionary, or perhaps that has always been my my nature. I don't know. But it's something that I've always wanted to share with people. I find myself engaging with people who have voted for Trump, as well as activists who are deeply traumatized by the recent events, particularly the election of Donald Trump and what has been unfolding since then. Well, I think we're all pretty traumatized because those of us who are awake to the the larger, bigger problems recognize how critical it is now for some real wisdom and not just mental intelligence, but the very highest of human capacities to guide our collective decision-making and to see so much lying and bullying and deception and, you know, so many different forms of corruption carrying the day is a pretty traumatizing experience. And yet those of us who can understand systems dynamics can see that the intensifying left-right, red state, blue state polarization is itself a huge threat to our capacity to cope, that in a way the biggest threat to aspects of our well-being is is the tearing of the social fabric that has us remembering our fellowship with one another, the fact that we really are in this together. And so we're fighting on this leaky lifeboat and ignoring the waves that threaten to capsize all of us. And that is a frightening prospect. In fact, facing the reality of this situation requires us to go through some... I have gone through, in the process of writing this book, and it goes back quite a few years. The mission that has really impelled me to create the book was kind of given to me something like 25 years ago. I made an attempt to write this book almost 20 years ago, but my own maturity had to go further. But anyway, in that whole process, I've had maybe three real dark nights of the soul because aspects of the positivity that I've wanted to bring to life and to my perception of our collective situation rested on illusions that I had to be stripped away. And, you know, the seriousness of our situation is hard to compute emotionally. Most of the people who have the courage to really face just how profound and and, and extreme and deeply challenging our collective situation is tend to come to the conclusion that there's really no hope, that we're headed for dystopia, if not extinction, 
and they conclude that that's just how it is. Now, I, I very much disagree with that. I think it's very important for us to recognize that the future is emergent, that it is being co-created, and that the whole history of evolution, cosmic evolution even, before there was Earth, you know, the evolution of this planet, the evolution of the physiosphere and, you know, of life, the emergence of life, the emergence of the noosphere, the emergence of culture and consciousness. It's miracle after miracle after miracle. And to act as if we know there will be no miracles in this time ahead, I think, is presumptuous. We don't know enough to be so certain of pessimism. But the profundity of the collective trance, the consensus trance that we are all a part of, because we're social creatures and we live in a society that's absolutely devoted to a kind of delusional positivity that rests on lies. And as we wake up from that, it's hard not to go into the darkness. However, I think that there's a possibility for a kind of hope and and inspiration and meaning and purpose and joy on the other side of that dark night journey that's much more robust and authentic and accurate to our situation than the kinds of hopes that most of us are dwelling in through this way that we all partake of the kind of the collective hypnotic trance that we, we tend to live in together. There's a place in the book where you write about how basically our predicament could be viewed as being natural and perhaps even inevitable in the evolutionary sense. Yes, that's right. And that's a very interesting perspective. It's one that I have actually been chewing on for a number of years and having conversations with people about Again, it's in that realm of uncertainty based partially on that notion that evolution has occurred in very perhaps chaotic and miraculous ways in fits and starts where life or existence will cruise along for long periods of time with no significant changes and then all of a sudden go through some crisis-induced evolutionary leap, and that this seems to be a recurring pattern. And you just use the term miracle to categorize it, but it could also be looked at as a very natural evolutionary process. That's right. What you're describing is called in biological evolution punctuated equilibrium. And the fact that we're living in a, in a punctuation era, a time of rapid change, revolutionary change, is actually very exciting. I think it's important that we recognize that as we wake up from the kind of collective lie and we see that we face threats that are are pretty daunting, but we're also participating in a pretty miraculous world at the same time, we, we hit the jackpot. We're living in a profoundly interesting time, in a time when what happens in our lifetimes has the possibility of having significance on a 
an evolutionary scale at a level of significance that's just outrageous. And somehow our souls consented, our souls even in a sense chose to be here now. This is our world. This is our life. This is our opportunity. And aspects of it are, you know, we eat better, we have more comfort, we have more access to wisdom and information and mobility and so many different forms of pleasure and entertainment. Now, that's a burden, too. The paradox of choice, the fact that choice is driving lots of us to anxiety and depression and addiction and deep neurosis, having so many choices is not an unadulterated good. However, for me, I have come to recognize through my spiritual awakenings, my own, you know, recognition of the nature of reality, that whatever is, by its very nature, can be trusted in a way. It can't be a problem. Even if we take our worst-case scenario, we imagine that we've already passed some awful point of no return and there's nothing that can be done to prevent us from all going extinct, maybe in just a few generations. Let's, let's take the most extreme scenario. Well, the extreme scenario is for this to happen within a few years even, but well, I don't yeah, buy yeah. that. Talking, talking about nuclear annihilation no, or no, 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 super the, rapid climate change yes, like, uh, yes. like Guy McPherson predicts. Yes, yes. exactly, exactly, which I don't, um, I don't buy that. Right. Well, I don't either. And yet, do I have to have an opinion about something so complex and technical that it's beyond my depth to do a rigorous analysis of all of its parts. Wouldn't it be better if I had epistemic humility? You know, epistemology is the study of how we know what's real. So epistemic humility is knowing that there's a limit to my knowing. Now, what I feel more confidence in is I'm pretty sure that nobody knows the future. You know, like the Wonderful quote from Yogi Berra, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Mm -hmm. uh, the future is emergent. The future is being co-created. The future is alive, and we are alive right now. And we have to recognize we're not in the stands watching the action on the field, you know, as if we were objective spectators. We're actors. We have the ball. We're on the field. We are that which will turn this around if it can be turned around. And... We are also that which will, you know, in, in that worst-case scenario, it will still matter what happens in the last generations of the human species. It will matter that we express all that is noblest and most wise and loving and awake uh, as we can. If it's a great hospice project, let us do it with brilliance and heart and excellence you know, let us rise to whatever our occasion is. You know, there's that great Zen story of the monk who is hanging by a rapidly fraying vine over a chasm with a tiger at the top. There's no way he, you know, he's going to die. And he sees a, a wild strawberry, and he reaches out and he tastes it. And, you know, the last line of the parable is, and it was so sweet. It would be a shame if we ceased to appreciate the blessings of our lives and to live them wholeheartedly and to be as much of the love and the health and the 
dynamism that can be the change we'd like to see in the world. That's why the spirituality of our activism is so important. If you're just joining me, I'm talking with Terry Patton. He's the author of A New Republic of the Heart, An Ethos for Revolutionaries. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. What's ahead of us is a great hospice project. You know, the the psychologist James Hillman, in the last years of his life, wrote a book called The Force of Character, in which he was contemplating what the meaning was of, you know, extreme old age. There's really not a lot that you're building anymore. You know, what are you doing? And, you know, his life work was over, in a sense. But he concluded, you know, really, my life work has been my character. And in this time of, you know, experiencing many losses, but in another way, being able to appreciate the trajectory of his whole life, he he was putting a finish on his life's work, like a finish even in the sense of like a piece of fine woodworking, you know, using the fine grit, sandpaper and the oil and buffing it to a high sheen. And in a sense, if the whole human experiment were at its end, it would matter how we did that. It would matter, you know, it all matters. And, and our greatest intelligence, our visceral intelligence, our mental intelligence, but also our heart intelligence, integrating all of our capacities is going to be absolutely critical. It's what's going to enable us to navigate these challenging times, or it's going to be how we're going to honor the profundity of being the ones who can look back. You know, we're we're looking back apparently billions and billions of years through the Hubble telescope, and all that happened in our lifetimes, Tonio. And we're looking forward at possibly the, you know, we're, we're, we're at this critical time of punctuation in which evolutionary changes of tremendous significance are happening so rapidly that we can watch them and participate in them in our own lifetimes. How we bear up under the psycho-spiritual, existential intensity of this, it is as if evolution itself all this time was wanting to know itself, wanting to see itself, wanting to become self-aware. And evolution is becoming self-aware through us, even as it is at a moment in which we have to change. We have to go through a stage transition, a profound shift in our whole way of being. And even testing the limits of that experience, of experiencing itself, and under the circumstances that it could do that, and also welcoming those opportunities to completely lose everything with the innate knowing of wholeness, awareness, that nothing could really change or affect the true nature of itself. 
you know, that in a sense you might say that uh, what is this life, what is reality, what is the body and the mind, you know, conscious light itself and conscious light has, you know, right now even physics is concluding that there are qualities of consciousness or vibratory essence at the very root even of matter and that the very nature of everything is kind of you know the happening and the and the relatedness the interaction of vibratory essence and the highest realizations of the greatest sages are of this conscious light which is love which is amazement which is bliss which is gratitude, which is self-complete, which has no dilemma at all, you know, all of that. But that wholeness is not just immune to the changes of life. It, it is also, it wakes not only up and out of being implicated by our challenges, it wakes down into life and then is able to be love in action and care in action and recognizes that even though in a sense nothing matters, in an even deeper sense, everything matters tremendously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all expanding. The wholeness is not a static state at all. It's it, it includes everything that's continually evolving and growing in any conceivable or even inconceivable dimensional directions. Exactly so, exactly so. And there's so many... So many parallels, so many references to so many different traditions and so many approaches to thinking about all of these things that come together. And one of the things that I've enjoyed so much in my life is connecting the dots, you know, connecting different ways of thinking about these things together and, and how similar or how every, every perspective, every evolved perspective from any wisdom tradition are talking about the same thing, only using different language and maybe from different angles. Yeah, there are profound universal truths that in a very real way are pointed to by every valid wisdom tradition, scientific, religious, spiritual, materialistic even. You know, I mean, we've come to a place where these attitudes of materialism or atheism and the attitudes of spirituality are all at their leading edge becoming so sophisticated that they're to some degree ceasing to be so distinct from each other. Mm -hmm. we're, we're in a moment in which the kinds of conversations that we're used to having, most of the conversations you'll find in the public sphere are debates. They're divisive, but they do something. You, you, you have somebody with a point of view trying to persuade somebody else of the truth they see, and they're arguing in a way that can, I wouldn't quite say perfect, but it can at least evolve their points of view. But that only works if somebody is right. And if we're facing questions for which nobody has adequate responses, what's necessary is shared inquiry. Mm -hmm. We have to sit with the questions. In, in the book, I use this metaphor of a Zen koan. And I love Japanese. that. I, yeah. I just love that perspective of looking at this highly complex 
crisis that we're facing on a global, cultural, ecological, and every other conceivable way level, that it's forcing us to sit in this unknowing place of a grand koan. That's right. It is uh, Dogen who introduced koan practice in Japan, wrote a great essay, his, his kind of magnum opus was a, a long, very dense, very paradoxical essay called Genjo Koan, which I don't pretend to understand altogether, but I've read the commentaries and interpretations on it, and one of the simplest and most powerful takeaways I get from it is that essentially life is always giving us impossible questions, and being present to those impossible questions in a way that allows us to wake up and grow through our exposure to them is how we need to be related. We need to recognize that all of life is, is presenting koans, and we have a paradoxical situation of having, you know, you and I who have never met, but who are clearly, you know, sincerely engaged, we were given the same koan. You and I and everyone listening to our voices has been given this koan. Everyone alive right now has been given this impossible question that we have to answer. It is a life or death matter. We have to find more adequate answers to this civilizational predicament, ways of embodying all that's best in this whole evolutionary experiment for the sake of what could have more moral force than our grandchildren's lot in life, their ability to have a human-friendly planet to live on, the future of biodiversity, not just our children, the human family, but the non-human families, not just of animals, but many plants. All of that hanging in the balance based on the decisions that human beings make our ability, perhaps, in an environment in which we have voices, there is something like a kind of free speech, there's something like a kind of very imperfect, very compromised democratic process. Can we use our time, our minds, our hearts, our relationships to be the change that would transform this enough to protect everything we love. Nothing could be more weighty. We have to find an answer to it, and yet it's seemingly insoluble. If we're honest about that, we sit there together, it's incredibly tender. I mean, in, in some sense, Tonio, we have to be near tears in terms of the depth of the, you know, vulnerability, tenderness, and seriousness with which we are present to these impossible questions. But of course, as I often say, things are far too serious for us to lose our sense of humor. Mm -hmm. I love and, that, and too. Some, <laughs> yeah, somehow we have to find our way in this heartbroken place to also find the lightheartedness and the sass, in a way, the, 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 the passion and the wildness of hearts. Yes, to keep our hearts wide open even as, as it's breaking. And to recognize that there'll be many moments in that process, and there'll be moments for just sobbing our heads off and moments for laughing our heads off. You right. Know? It's not like we have to be in some fixed state. And these experiences will repeat themselves. Our hearts will be broken again and will be tested again, and probably in an even more intense way. That's right. And, you know, one of the things that's helped me relax with all of this is the recognition that you know, maybe, I mean, it's really not impossible. Okay, Tony, let me paint you the positive picture. It's not inconceivable that we will discover some sort of zero-point energy source that's genuinely clean, 
free, and maybe there'll be some other or some related discovery that will actually enable us to rapidly and inexpensively on a huge scale to precipitate carbon from the atmosphere. Maybe there will be, in the midst of that, so much wealth created that we can fund cultural transformation on an incredible scale, and we're going to actually turn this evolutionary corner and create a genuinely sustainable, permanently sustainable transformation of human culture and economy such that we can live on a garden planet. You know, we can dream of incredible wonders. If human evolution were to continue for millions of years, you know, the glories are almost, you know, the sky's the limit to what we could imagine. Mm-hmm. Maybe all of that, you know, could happen. It's, mm-hmm. not, Absolutely. it's not that it is de facto impossible, uh-huh. and yet, you know, just look at any of the trends, project, intelligently project forward everything we know about what's happening right now, and it seems like we are absolutely screwed. It does and seem that way. no way out. <laughs> it does seem that way from our, our limited perspective. Yeah. So no matter what, there are going to be good days and bad days. There are going to be heartbreaking losses, and there are going to be wonders. And we're going to get sick and die or get, you know, however it's going to go, maybe die violently. No matter what, we're going to have to suffer incredible losses, and we're going to have to have the bigness of heart and spirit to live through all that. And so whether it's the best case or the worst case, we got the same thing ahead. We got a wild life in a wild world where we're going to have a chance to live out our values and our hearts and souls in relation to each other, learn to love better, learn to live more in the presence of and as the love, bliss, conscious, light, Buddha, nature, radiant, transcendental, conscious being that is the all in all of all. We, we have all of that no matter what. And if we can take in all of this with uh, a kind of bigness of consciousness and heart and turn to each other and begin to be related differently to each other, we're on the right track. (laughs) Yes, to to find a way to ground that in the physical world that we live in, which is the essence of spiritual activism or activist spirituality, integrating the inner work, the inner realization with outer responsibility, and the common good, the greater good of the collective. Yeah, and that's what this book is all about. What I've written about again and again in different ways are pieces of what, for me, is a grand synthesis that's just barely coming into view right now, Mm -hmm. in which, you know, the fact that all our wisdom traditions are in conversation with each other and with science in a way they never have been before allows a kind of synthesis relative to the inner work, and yet the recognition that we, in a sense, do sign an IOU when we internalize the idea that we face problems that can't be solved with the kind of consciousness that created them and therefore go about the business of changing our consciousness, we have to circle back around and address those problems. And we have to go through grieving process as well, because part of the surrender is, and I would say that Grief is an essential part of our evolutionary journey. It's a form of moral intelligence. And yet grief can be immobilizing. Depression can be self-perpetuating. Pessimism can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. The ways that our 
soul can be crushed can become unhealthy. There's no question about it. And so the instinct to find our way to a positive orientation is not only immature and reactive. It is an expression of a valid intuition. You know, just given the choice between hope and despair, I'll choose hope every time. It's just that there's a developmental trajectory in which there's a kind of pre-hope that's naive and based in denial. There's a dark night of the soul and a facing of the darkness, and there's a whole different kind of positivity on the other side. Once you have faced the devastating reality of our situation, you know, the heart is broken. You know, if, you, if you open your being to resonate with all of the cruelty and suffering and madness and horror of this whole world, you are deepened irrevocably, and you may also be able to be blissful, but it's not a childish denial of all of that. It's the, the, the grief that has been incorporated into you, into your being, has deepened you so that your capacity for joy and celebration isn't rooted in avoidance. It's an expression of the fullness of your, of your total character. Right, and our ability to love is deepened and expanded by the awareness of the tremendous suffering and grief and destruction around us. And our painful awareness that it is our lifestyles. It is middle class, particularly American, but middle class lifestyles all over the world, of so many millions and billions of people that create the pressures on the life support systems and the living earth, on the ecological communities of living plants and animals that are right now threatening to go through disruptive changes. It, it, it is pretty much inevitable now that there will be more and more extreme weather events, and they will kill some of us, and there will be devastating you know, desertifications of big swaths of land and mass refugee flows and then pressures on societies and cultures and they'll tend to exacerbate conflicts and put pressures on financial and, you know, the insurance system will at some point be unable to deal with the losses. And these different disruptions are frightening. But the potentials for miracles to coexist with this are too great for us to imagine we can know the course ahead. The disruptions, both negative and positive, will function. Well, for one thing, they're volatile, unpredictable, chaotic, and ambiguous. VUCA is an acronym used in military planning, and what it means is you just don't know what's going to happen. Plus, if we look back at recent history, there are always these completely unpredictable black swan events. So to wake up is to wake up to the extreme nature of the insecurity in which we live. And hopefully that can wake our hearts into gratitude for the wonder of the moment we're in. I mean, how wonderful that you, that I felt so deeply moved to contemplate this and to bring it together in this book, and that you felt moved by your care for all things, that you would be doing this show and reading extensively and 
will also read my book and internalize it and care about it and speak with your intelligent heart and care in a way that intends, really, because of your respect and love for others, to share this in a way that hopefully educates and uplifts people's perspectives. That we're doing this, and how lucky we are, how beautiful this moment is. And if we're not somehow enjoying that, even as our hearts are also broken, well, we're missing something really important. If you're just joining me, I'm talking with Terry Patton. He's the author of A New Republic of the Heart, an ethos for revolutionaries. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. ability to embrace these amazing paradoxes, these extreme paradoxes. It's one of the qualities that I enjoyed so much reading the book was, was just recognizing how, how natural it was for you to embrace such paradox and to be able to articulate them so clearly in a way that we can clearly, soberly recognize the gravity, the severity of our current situation, and yet also see, as in a mathematical equation where crisis equals opportunity, that the extent of the crisis equals the extent of the opportunity. And I just can't help but sense that this great unfathomable wholeness in its own mysterious way well, of course, we're not separate from it, but that it's rooting for us in some inconceivable way, that it's a natural part of what we're going through to be having this experience. And whether we make it or not almost doesn't matter because it's as if we'll be able to do it again in some other way, or perhaps we are doing it in some other way. Right. <laughs> the multiverse theory has yeah. validity. <laughs> Which to me... I mean, I have a hard time imagining that that isn't what's happening. With what little I understand of quantum physics, it seems inevitable that that is occurring, considering the unlimited nature of, of all that is. Well, yeah, I think, I think that the, the emotional impact, I, I'm really with you in the way that you're just choosing to open in wonder and to trust the process of your life and the experience of your community, of our community. Yes. That we are, we are together in this. And, you know, it is a tipping point. It is calling the question. It is as if this evolutionary process has, you know, it's been open-ended, it's been preparing itself forever. But as Gene Houston likes to say, people of every era have thought that their time was the time, the important time when everything was at stake. But they are wrong. This is it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and we can laugh at that, you know, perhaps 
you know, sense of specialness or inflation that might attend to that perception. But it's really real that, you know, certainly never before have we been given such an array of knowledge and vision and perspectives and pressure. And this, this evolutionary opportunity, I want to honor it. I want to, like, I feel called, I think we're all called by our particular moment in something like the way that an addict is called by the family, sitting him down and telling him, hey, you're ruining your life, you're destroying your family, you're threatening everything you love, you've got to go into recovery. In some sense, the oceans and the atmosphere is, is doing that to all of us right now. And those of us, you know, the human collective would inevitably hear that voice gradually. So those of us who are hearing that are doing our best to respond. You know, some important leaders who I deeply respect, Bill McKibben, for example, are saying, look, this is just a matter of physics, and we have to mobilize politically and address this, and nothing else matters as much. And I basically concur, and I'm grateful for his leadership, and I participate with 350.org myself. But I don't think that it is only at the level of the exteriors. It's also, I think, very much an emotional and a spiritual crisis. And the reason that the human collective has not been mobilizing is not just that they don't understand the physics or that they're, you know, kind of too cussed and, uh, you know, some moral defect that we best simply condemn and rail against. Some of their aspects of what it is to be human that are more complex than we've realized. There's obviously some enduring way that having, you know, spent so many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years in hunter-gatherer bands where we warred with other bands that this sense of identity with my clan and my nation and my religion and my nation, my ethnic group, that that would be tattooed into our social neurology, and that there would have to be some enduring polarity, even as we come into a time in which we live or die together as a global culture. And it's so essential that we understand our common humanity with people who speak different languages and have different values and, and live differently and are harder for us to empathize with. And that kind of pluralistic, you know, brother-sisterhood is, is super important. But still, there's an enduring polarity between this global sensibility and a more nationalistic sensibility. That's why the 2016 election backlash, why I relate to it as I relate to everything, you know, as you know, life is a school and everything that happens is teaching us something. Now, it may be that part of what it's showing us is that we can't sail through this in the ways we had hoped in previous decades, and that things are going to be bloodier and more destructive than we had hoped. It does appear that it may be like that, but it certainly means that we have to respect the importance of passionate engagement. You know, Donald Trump and a lot of the people around him are gut-level players. They're not strong on morality, it seems to me, but they're at least strong on visceral will and you know, hard work and, it seems, 
pretty ugly, ego, but those capacities to swing for the fences and passionately work for a position, if they're to be countered, we're going to have to be as strong in our gut-level capacities. You know, there are whole fields called neurocardiology for the brain and the heart and neuroenterology for the brain and the gut. And the brain in our guts is probably not as developed as Donald Trump's. That's one of the reasons he's been so effective. We may have more going on in terms of our abstract reasoning and our heart intelligence and our care and our intuition, but it's asking me to grow in that gut level. It's asking me to come together with others such that our collectives can outcompete that kind of egoic activity. So obviously this is demanding that we talk to each other in new ways and listen to each other in new ways and arrive together in something amazing that we have never even known was possible. And discovering that together and becoming inspired by that together, that feels like an order of business that is truly, truly inspiring and exciting and that I'm hoping my book will serve, that I'll be able to participate in more and more with other people of goodwill and intelligence like yourself. Well, is it enough for people like ourselves to be having these conversations? Don't we need to be having these conversations with people like Donald Trump and the people that he gathers around him? I mean, what good does it do for the choir to be having these conversations amongst themselves in this world at this time? It does a lot of good. We actually have to become stronger and more cohesive. Like, for instance, right now, we have an election cycle. We're having this conversation in May of 2018. Wow, it's, it's easy to forget that. <laughs> yeah, well, we better not. And there's a lot at stake in the election cycle in the United States, and it's absolutely essential. It is morally obligatory that we not only vote, but that we participate actively in ways that influence the outcome of that midterm election. It's a spiritual practice to do so. And right now, one of the critical things that's under threat in our world is our ability even to be related to accurate truth. This idea of a post-truth world is profoundly dangerous. And we're in a peculiar moment in terms of culture in which, you know, I, I was pointing out that our whole culture has a consensus trance and that there are narratives that are being put forward that are, you know, one of the principles of integral theory is that every perspective is both true and partial. So it isn't as though the point of view on reality that you're going to read in the pages of the New York Times lacks all truth. It, it's true to some degree, but the practice of journalism is nowhere perfect. There is the attempt to practice journalism with integrity, and it is practiced as best they can at the New York Times and the Washington Post. There's big differences between that and what you're going to find on your favorite conspiracy website. But there's also a groupthink and a conformity to attitudes that makes every perspective to some degree partial, even when we're submitting to those disciplines. But the awareness that everybody's crafting a narrative has broken down our ability to respect that there is a difference between a news-gathering organization that only will print a story if it can have confirmed sources, even if they're anonymous. You have to have three, and they have to be known to the editors, and so forth and so on. That's different from 
opinion. Like the, the many, many consumers of news, particularly you know, flagrantly true on the right with Fox and, and some of the other right-wing outlets, that they can't tell the difference between opinion and news. So the restoration of science, journalism, the practices that determine what is accurate, that separate fact from delusion, is under existential threat right now. So we're in a peculiar moment. You and I are awake to spiritual realities. We know how central they are to our view of things. But in this 2018 election cycle, there are people who are confirmed atheists for whom materialist view of reality is their belief structure. Mm -hmm. I would say they're a religion. I disagree with them profoundly about many things, but they do understand that there's a difference between facts and, the, you know, they respect science. And at this point, we and they have to be allies, and we have to come together. And at this point, it's pretty obvious that morality dictates dethroning Republicans, because the Republican Party is now headed by Donald Trump, and the way Donald Trump is doing things isn't too healthy. And we've got a big, big order before us, because doing that and defeating the Republicans in the midterms won't be the end. You know, there's no victory lap there, because then we're going to have the painful thing of coping with a a president who's defying democratic norms and perhaps will need to be impeached or in other ways at least check, but the potential for that to further polarize our country and break down the social fabric is great. And how we find a way to remember and exercise our commonality with our cousins and neighbors and colleagues and friends who have noticed the important limitations and partialities of the perspectives on the left and who reacted to them and elected Donald Trump and feel allied to and identified with him, how do we rebalance that without further tearing our nation apart? We have a big challenge. So coming together and actually electing better people is crucial, and by no means will it complete our task. If you're just joining me, I'm talking with Terry Patton. He's the author of A New Republic of the Heart, an ethos for revolutionaries. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. also the first immediate step towards doing collective work together. And I'm very interested in this concept of collective work because I had the great fortune of living in a spiritual community back in the 70s for about five years where we did a lot of work together, a lot of integrated what you would call evolutionary work together. And it was a profound foundation for me that I've been integrating into my life ever since. And so I'm very interested in your experience with that kind of work and how that kind of collective work has been evolving. 
Yeah, it's a big focus of what I talk about in the book, and it's been a big focus of my whole life. Um, you know, when I was six years old, my parents moved from the south side of Chicago to a place in the what was the country, now the western suburbs of Chicago, called York Center, into the York Center Community Cooperative. And it was a cooperative living arrangement of about 70 families that had been founded by members of the Church of the Brethren, one of the peace churches, and they had invited people of other races and religions to live together with them as a witness for peace and brotherhood. And so I grew up in the 60s as probably the kid in that group who most wanted to engage with adults about current events and values. And so I was mentored by pacifists and civil rights leaders and Japanese-Americans who had been interned during the Second World War in becoming a, a social activist. So I was very active. I was involved with SDS, Chicago Area Draft Resistors, various peace organizations, and civil rights organizations. When I went to college at the University of Michigan, I led various protests and rallies. And then I realized that even though my left politics were rooted in a sense of values, that I was too immature, that I was an adolescent, and that if I was really going to be a force in the world for something better, I had to change my own consciousness and uh, I found my way to the human potential movement and then to an ashram that I spent 15 years in from the age of 22 to 37. And I did a lot of group work there of a different kind, and that was living in community and communal households and uh, our sanctuaries and so forth. And after a period of time living as a householder and raising my son, I, I found my way into the integral movement, which in a different way began to engage in cultural work. And we identify what we call the we space. That is, you and I are each having an experience of this conversation. There's also something else that's not you or me. It's us. It's the quality of the mutuality we're sharing. And that we itself can practice, that we itself can evolve. It can become self-aware. And it's particularly alive when you can be together in physical space, and you can feel the subtle energetic qualities of your connections with one another. And that we space has its own intelligence. There's a collective wisdom and a collective insight that arises that can actually serve as a kind of spiritual authority in very powerful ways. So there's a whole series of practices that many people have been doing for a long time, you know, dating back really, you know, Quaker meeting or, you know, Socrates' dialogues. All, there are all kinds of ways that people have worked with dialectic and dialogue and qualities of shared experience. It's a fundamental dimension of all human culture and societies. How we are together is something everybody is working with to some degree, but particularly since David Bohm recognized that the world was entering into a crisis period and that it required a kind of dialogue, and he began to initiate Bohmian dialogue experiments, and then that kind of merged together with the encounter group experiments that came out of the human potential movement in Esalen. And there have been a variety of ways that we've been working with what it's like to be together in human collectives in innovative ways for the last 50 years that I think are beginning to crest into a new level in which something new is emerging. And I think that the idea of an integral we space and, that, and the evolution of that is, is a very fruitful place for us to evolve, 
new ways of being human. Evolutionary theory would predict that under these crisis conditions, a new level of human life would emerge. And what would it be? It would probably be some sort of superorganism. It would be a human collective that would have enough in-group altruism and enough functionality and efficiency that collectives of people who were in a different level of communication and communion with one another could out-compete individuals who didn't have that kind of connection with each other. And if that, in fact, is to emerge, it's going to have to emerge from communities of people who are practicing their ways of being human very intentionally, who are recognizing that this whole life is a school and that there are Every moment is an opportunity to be more or less conscious or caring or present or awake or alive or, you know, any of the virtues we might want to cultivate. And if our communities of practice, whether they be, you know, meditative communities, Buddhist communities, Christian communities, congregations of various kinds or or activist groups, people who are simply engaging in a variety of different community spirits, but who are finding their way into new levels of resonance with each other, if we can begin to break into new territory, perhaps we can achieve something that has the potential to really function differently and produce different results. And we have to hope that that can happen, because it has such evolutionary necessity. So that's one of the areas that I'm most focused on experimenting with for myself. You just said that in a kind of future tense sort of way. Well, it's because some of the most exciting potentials have yet to be realized anywhere, and some of the things I'm most excited about haven't yet emerged. But no, I'm actually doing a lot of that in present tense. I had a wonderful meeting with a group of people just yesterday. But each thing I do feels almost like it's prelude to something deeper. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, for people who are interested in exploring this, What would you suggest for them as next steps? Well, clearly, I I hope that they'll read my book, and I think that their clarity about what is involved will be sharpened by reading the two chapters on conversations and and tribalism. We use the word tribalism pejoratively to talk about the us-them consciousness, my tribe versus yours. But these communities of practice are also tribes in a different sense, and Having more robust and healthy tribes is super important, and really the future of the evolution of our culture kind of depends on it. And that's what I'm calling a new tribalism. And you call them we tribes. Yes, I sometimes call them we tribes, referring to that idea of the we space. Uh I did a radio show with a young Goddard student. This radio station is operated on the campus of Goddard College, which is a, a wonderfully progressive and magical environment for real evolutionary education, real spiritual activism, and activism of all kinds here. But I was having this wonderful conversation where we were just fooling around, and we somehow got into this conversation, you know, how we communicate on iPhones and use iPads, and we're currently sitting in these I chairs when we could be sitting in we chairs, like we couches, and to find a whole other way of communicating and being in this world and relating to each other and to the world. 
And I reflected back on that spontaneous, playful conversation as I was reading this book. That's very cool. I love that. Because I think this is an inherent emergent. To the degree that I spoke of something that's really true, it isn't only happening in my mind, it isn't only happening in my communities, it's inherent, it's going to be an emergent. Because we're in a moment in which we're having a crisis of fragmentation, and that crisis of fragmentation is stimulating a response of the agency of wholeness. Wholeness is reasserting itself in the face of that crisis of fragmentation through us, as us. So it's like an inherent force, and, and therefore there's a crack in everything, and that's how the sprouts get up through the cracks in the sidewalk, and it's going to be happening all over the place. So the fact that you're already, you know, like the value of my book is to you is partly that it said a lot of things you already were quite aware of, and then it connected a few dots that you hadn't heard in quite the same way before, and yet something in you recognized it because the awareness that was arising in me to write the book was also arising in you. And the universality of this process of wholeness reasserting itself is, is what we can trust. It's bigger than anybody's articulation or anybody's origination of any piece of it. Mm -hmm. And it's also something that I can take as a small package and hand off to somebody else, which is an extension of the whole mission of this radio show that I do, which is sharing this wonderful process that I get to do of interviewing and talking to people who are doing wonderful work, people who deeply care about the world and the common good, who have dedicated themselves to the common good in various different ways. And collectively, we are blazing a superhighway into the future. I believe that's true. And thank you for that work. Beautiful. That's what I'm trying to do in different ways, but in some ways very similar ones, too. I think we all are. I mean, all, the, all of us who are on this path of integrating our spiritual practice into the world, finding a way to ground it in a meaningful way toward the common good, which is one of the aspects of the Buddhist tradition that I respect so much of offering all of our work, our individual spiritual work, to the collective good, renouncing our individual gain for the benefit of all. Yes. Beautifully put. Consciousness and our behavior truly be of service to all beings and to life itself. Life wants to keep living. Evolution wants to keep evolving. And as we recognize that we're at a tipping point, it makes something radical, appropriate and necessary. And therefore, we're in a moment, this is why I called my book A New Republic of the Heart. When a revolution happens, there's the declaration of the new, you know, whatever it was, Free Cuba or the Soviet Russia. Well, A New Republic of the Heart is a way of drawing a line in the sand and saying, in a radical way, in a way that's not only nonviolent, but radically non-oppositional in a way that says we're in this lifeboat together and I will not allow this apparent game of separation and polarization to divide you from me. This is war, you know, war in the healthy sense, where love speaks with a kind of ferocity and authority 
that is even more commanding of influence and authority than anger or, you know, the old paradigm patriarchal kind of power. And we are all waking up to that, and we will. Intelligence and wisdom will do its very best to find its hands onto the tiller to the degree that we have a role of steering things so that wisdom can guide our path forward. And that's what's happening. A wisdom based much more centrally in the heart and from the heart. That's right. That's why it's a new republic of the heart. And there's a funny kind of paradoxical term that I really appreciate, weaponizing love and wholeness. And I, I can relate to weaponizing love. About 10 years ago, I started doing a practice where I was essentially weaponizing love, using love very energetically in a very powerful, young Mm. sort of way. And that's how I've connected to the term weaponizing love. But I would love to hear what you meant by weaponizing love and weaponizing wholeness. Well, we're growing to a moment in human culture in which the chips are down. You know, it's all hands on deck. This is our moment. And in that moment, the wholeness of being, the health of being, that which befriends the future, rises up and says no to our collective sleep, no to our collective numbness, no to our collective death. No to the destruction of the lives of our grandchildren. No to all that foolishness. Fiercely and insistently. And it finds its way not to just speak truth to power, but to acquire power, to make a difference. Nothing has ever changed the world except groups of concerned citizens, and our time is rapidly approaching. And finding a way to begin to mobilize our own love and and practice is, is crucial. Now, that means recognizing that your whole life is practice and that how you tend to be isn't good enough. It's about being confronted and confronting the egoity, the unconsciousness, the laziness, the all the things that are less than love in ourselves. We fight this revolution in every heart. We fight this revolution in every friendship, in every family, in every organization, in every community, in every nation, in every ethnic group, in every human collective. There are forces of corruption and incoherence and fragmentation, and there are forces of wholeness and health and coherence and integrity. And finding a way for love to outflank to hold more power and more influence and more authority than fear and anger is the game of our time. So I don't have all the answers as to exactly how we do that. I know that that is our task and that it will be an ongoing revelation. We're in the koan, the impossible question of how to do that best. We know some things and we're going to learn more if we continue to apply ourselves to it with all our hearts and souls. Mm -hmm. And you have a wonderful quote from Teilhard de Chardin. The day will come after harnessing the winds, the tides, and gravitation will harness the energies of love. And on that day, for the second time in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. Exactly, yes. And there's such incredibly 
powerful and profound implications in that quote that humanity has not realized yet. That some I mean, of us are just beginning to. We don't ahead in that way. And right. that's what's exciting about this time. Exactly. And there's a metaphor that you use in the book of mycelium community on this planet and mycelium consciousness. And we're not alone on this planet in terms of intelligence. And underfoot, there's this huge mycelium community that in some mysterious and seemingly magical way blooms and arises in times of need and generate properties, mutate in ways that are needed in our environment. And there seems to be no limit to the possibilities of how that mycelium community can adapt in healing ways in our world, including, and perhaps in some of the most profound ways, the psilocybin community in the way that it can affect human consciousness at a time when we are experiencing this dramatic evolutionary crisis, which is a crisis on all levels, including and perhaps most especially on the level of consciousness. Yes. The metaphor is to the social mycelium. Right. That even as, you know, the mycelium is a root system, essentially, of mushrooms or of fungal forms, and it can be almost invisible in the soil. It's almost like a snail trail. It's just these filaments. You know, you cut right through them with a shovel. They don't seem to have much of a form. But they are transporting water and other nutrients from one place to another. They're synergizing with photosynthetic plants to create soil. We think of them as a form of rot, of, you know, decay, and yet they're part of the way that life regenerates. All of that is profoundly a metaphor, well, especially the fact that they can sit dormant for years and then suddenly when the conditions are right, bloom. So there's a lot that's already healthy and whole about human relationships. And those healthy and whole aspects of human relationships, in a way, are our social mycelium. We give directions to strangers. There is goodness in the 98 to 99.5% of us that are not psychopaths. And that goodness is going to find its way forward and is finding its way forward already. And there are many, many worthy projects. last 30 pages of my book or resource section of just a, a fraction of the many ways that this new republic of the heart is coming into being already. So I am excited and inspired and full of joy. I am not discouraged, but the joy is not superficial to the grief and to the sobriety, which I recognize our situation. So how can people find out more about your work and perhaps even connect with you or people, organizations that are involved in this work? Well, if you come to my website, and there are two URLs for it, one is anewrepublicoftheheart.com and the other is terrypatton.com. You'll have an opportunity to join the nonprofit, become a member of the New Republic of the Heart. That's just being put online. is isn't quite there yet at the time of my speaking, but it will be soon. And you can certainly get on my mailing list immediately. And the levels of discussion and the level of discourse that I'm 
trying to engage here are, I think, growing in that community, and I'm also helping people network with others. And there's a midwifing forward of one another that I hope to substantiate in communities that are engaging both inner and outer work quite vigorously, and there are going to be some opportunities to be involved in this next election cycle together with other practitioners through that network, too. There's so much in this book. I mean, this book is so full of wonderful, practical, and optimistic, enlightening stuff, even at the same time that it's acknowledging the severity of the crisis. And perhaps, since we don't have time to talk about everything, we could end with that famous quote from Margaret Mead, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Thank you so much, Tonio. It's been a real pleasure. I so appreciate your taking this time with me. I am so grateful for all of your time. I'm so grateful for this book, and I throughout the reading of it, have been thinking of the people that I want to share it with. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm grateful to have been able to spend this time with you. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure talking with you, and good luck to us all. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a blessing, and and it's our responsibility to find our way of relating to this blessing creatively and gratefully. (laughs) Yes, no matter what the outcome is. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for this life, regardless of what happens. Yes. Yes. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Terry Patton. He's the author of A New Republic of the Heart, an ethos for revolutionaries. Terry is the creator and host of the online series Beyond Awakening, where he has explored the big questions of our time with some of the most prominent and dynamic thought leaders. Terry speaks and consults internationally as a community organizer, philosopher, and teacher, also a social entrepreneur involved in supporting restorative redwood forestry, innovating new technological alternatives to fossil fuels, and creating new currencies for a sustainable economy.
you're not using your heart for what hearts are for they've been trying to shut us down our whole life i thank god for healing you ain't gotta get me lit i got my own life thank god for listening listen you've been trying to build me up my whole life i thank god i'm living sometimes i feel like a stranger maybe i ain't from here world going crazy how could that be unclear know that i'm a soldier hearts on my battleground sword in the holster had to come back around i ain't trying to hide away i just had to meditate i ain't got a lot to say what the ancestors made speaking to the whole globe numbers don't occur to me you can listen solo cause you're the whole world to me i jump in with both feet nothing low key you can find me where i'm supposed to be where my folks be if you listen very closely you know who chose me nothing that i own owns me and so i'm so free i remember being hungry needing groceries night time getting no sleep till my nose bleed got a message to the police you're not using your heart for what hearts are for they've been trying to shut us down our whole life i thank god for building you ain't gotta get me lit i got my own life i thank god i'm living not for one second i believe what you're telling me i know you invent the disease and sell the remedy universe is sending me centuries of memories so the very breath that i breathe is all i ever need i got that muhammad ali up in my pedigree yes i be speaking my peace up in my 70s ain't worried about you threatening me i'm just being honest i ain't buying fear just because it's all you got left we just want to make love till we wake up i believe whoever made us envision greatness and you know they want to paint us with the same brush want to entertain us till we fill our grave up all right okay but when it's all said and it's all done and i look back at the trophies i won i will only count one i'm using my heart for what hearts are for they've been trying to shut us down our whole life i thank god for healing you ain't gotta get me lit i got my own life i thank god i'm living and i know who i am i know whose i am when your wings i fly in your shoes i stand i'm animated by love i don't move by chance any stage i touch any place i stand there y'all land living in the world as it is cracked vessel i am no more and no less than a man i'm not making no claims but i'm using my heart for what hearts are for all the beauty in this whole life uh, i thank god for healing and you ain't gotta get me lit i got my own life life uh, i thank god i'm living just reflecting all the beauty in this whole life Yeah. 
Everybody who contributed to our spring pledge drive, we didn't reach our goal of $30,000, but we did raise about $22,000 with your help and your generosity and your love. And that's a wonderful thing. Thank you again so much. And you can continue to support us. You can continue to help us reach our goal of raising $30,000 by making a secure donation online at our website at wgdr.org. That's wgdr.org. And again, thank you. That's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.